Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about how we can manage a very core part of the human experience, that negative voice that lives inside all of our heads. Fundamentally, it's very challenging to perform at a high level or be kind to others when we're not kind and supportive ourselves. There's a reason that Dr. Hansen and I began our book Resilient with a chapter dedicated to compassion, and particularly self-compassion. It's the fundamental building block on which our personal growth rests. That's why I'm really looking forward to speaking with our guest today, Dr. Kristen Neff. Dr. Neff is the Associate Professor of Human Development and Culture in the Educational Psychology Department at the University of Texas at Austin. She's widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts on self-compassion, being the first to operationally define and measure the construct over a decade ago. In addition to her pioneering research into self-compassion, she's developed a program to teach self-compassion skills in daily life, co-created with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Germer for the podcast as well. So Kristen, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me, Forrest and Rick. So you studied communications at UCLA, and then you did your graduate work at UC Berkeley on moral development and reasoning. Mm -hmm. And to an outsider, there may not be a clear connection between that kind of work and the self-compassion work that you do today. So what kind of led you from point A to point B here? Right. Well, there's not a clear, direct academic connection. So when I was studying moral reasoning, I became very interested in issues of you know, right and wrong and how people make pro-social judgments, for instance. So I was always kind of interested in this field generally, Mm. on the kind of universal human rights, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then what had happened is when I was going to graduate school in Berkeley, I started becoming interested in Buddhism, right? Which is where I learned about self-compassion. You know, I, I just went for my own benefit. I was under a lot of stress and I thought, you know, I heard meditation was good for stress. I thought I would give it a try. And so luckily for me that the woman teaching my particular class talked a lot about self-compassion and how we really needed to learn to be supportive to ourselves, you know, to be a good friend to ourselves. And I had never really thought about that intentionally. So I, but I started practicing self-compassion and I was just really, to be honest, blown away by the huge difference it made, Mm. that little shift in orientation toward myself just being mean, living my life and feeling my stress, to actually also being a friend to myself and supporting myself as I was going through my stress. And so it was from that point that I started thinking, well, maybe we should actually research this thing called self-compassion. And, you know, at that point, even though it had been written about and kind of discussed and maybe humanistic psychology, it hadn't really been studied empirically, mm. you know, and I really defined it and found a way to measure it. Yeah. So when I, when I got my real job at UC Berkeley, I mean, sorry, at UT Austin, <laughs> um, yeah, I decided to study it. And so that's kind of how I got here. Yeah. So there's a lot in there to unpack. And it was yeah. interesting where you said at the end there about defining this term and yes. what this term really means. So yeah. we use the I suppose word, I was going to say phrase there for some reason because it's hyphenated, but the word self-compassion, uh-huh. very casually in conversation and kind of in a generalist sort of way. But is there a more operational definition that you have for it? Yeah. And by the way, I just have to say the fact that people even know the word is a new thing. 15 mm. years ago, whatever it was published, like you didn't even hear, even Buddhists didn't really talk about self-compassion. They talked about compassion for the self. The mm. idea was compassion mm-hmm. came first. And you included the self and other people and difficult people and neutral people and 
all sentient beings, but the, the kind of hyphenated version, self-compassion, was some people had used it, but it wasn't wasn't really in the common parlance. And I think that's thanks to the research that's taken off on it. So basically, I realized that I had to clearly define it in order to measure it. I decided I wanted to create a scale to measure it to kind of start the research going. But what I started with is the definition of compassion for others. And again, mm. there wasn't at that time really a clear consensus definition. Actually, I'm not sure there is now as well. So what I did is I read every basically Buddhist book I could get my hands on because that's the tradition I was coming from. So I read, I read you know, Sharon Salzberg's Loving Kindness, mm-hmm. um, Jack Kornfield's A Path with Heart. I wish Tara Brock had written Radical Acceptance when I was doing this work, but she, she hadn't really written that book yet. So I was just kind of piecing it together from all these sources. And I realized that from my point of view, self-compassion needed a few things in order to count, in order not to be something like self-pity you know, which might kind of Mm, mm -hmm. look like self-compassion, but really not be a good thing. So the first thing I realized is I realized you needed to be mindful to have self-compassion, that the ability to turn toward suffering and kind of be with it it without immediately trying to resist it or avoiding it and pretending it's not there. You actually needed that for self-compassion, for compassion for others as well, right? That you know, if you're lost in the pain and you're just wallowing in the pain, you can't do that thing of stepping outside of yourself and being a good friend. On the other hand, if you're avoiding it or resistant, like, oh, I don't, want to, I don't want to admit the fact that I'm really struggling, you also can't be self-compassionate. Mm. So, you know, mindfulness is really the first step of compassion for others or oneself. We have to be willing and really have the courage to acknowledge, this is really hard for me right now. You know, I need some care in the moment. So that's really the first step. And then obviously, I think the more intuitive side is, is the kindness that um, in order to count as self-compassion, we need to be kind of kind, understanding, supportive, as opposed to harshly judgmental. Most of us, especially when our suffering comes from failure or making a mistake, our first reaction is to judge ourselves. I, sh- you know, I shouldn't have done that. That was, that was wrong with me. I'm a bad person. And that's not compassionate. So really to count as compassion, the response needs to be warm and caring and this idea of you know concern with the alleviation of suffering, which is so key to compassion. Mm-hmm. And at first, when I was coming up, you know, with trying to define it, I just thought it was mindfulness and kindness. But then I realized that you had to include a recognition of common humanity to really count as compassion. And again, in order to make it different than self pity, Jack Cornfield at that point had written about pity and compassion being what's called near enemies. They look similar on the surface, but they're really diametrically Mm. opposed, that if we were just kind to ourselves when we're suffering, we might wallow in self-pity, which means poor me, woe is me. And that's actually not a healthy state. In order for it to be compassion, even if you look at the Latin of compassion, it means passion, suffer, come with, suffer with. There's an inherent connectedness in the experience of compassion, a realization that, you know, there but for fortune go I. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that we needed an essential part of this construct. We needed to remember that everyone is imperfect and everyone leads an imperfect life, right? And that once we did that, then we'd be able to have this kind understanding stance for ourselves. But what happens actually, most people, especially when they fail or make a mistake or or even when just something difficult happens, they feel this should not be happening as if normal is perfect. Mm. And when things aren't perfect, something has gone wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Although, of course, that's not what being human means. Being human by definition means things go wrong all the time, right? But we kind of forget that. And so when things are difficult, we feel like something has gone wrong, and then we feel isolated and cut off from other people. So really, for me, one of the keys of self-compassion is this remembrance that it's all of us, all of it together. And then also, I mean, if I don't really write so much about this, but the whole idea that's talked about a lot in Buddhism about interdependence, you know, that everything arises out of this incredibly complex web of cause and condition. And, you know, the idea that we judge ourselves as bad or, or blame any one person as causing things really doesn't make sense. When you recognize the complexity of all these interdependent causes and conditions, compassion is really the only wise response, you know, understanding, realizing that we only have so much control. And that, that's also kind of built into this idea of mm-hmm. self-compassion as well. We, we realize, well, we can't get it right. It's just we aren't in control. And therefore, our one response is to have kindness and compassion for ourselves and others. Thank you for saying all that, Kristen. And as someone, in my case, who's been very interested in your work and mm-hmm. that of others on self-compassion, I've learned things just in the last two minutes here. It's been really <laughs> useful for me. And I really appreciate it including just to rewind back a bit, your point that through self-compassion, we can develop self-worth without falling into the pitfalls of, let's say, Mm self-esteem, piling up accomplishments and seeking our own self-esteem by feeling superior to others. That's a lovely and important point. And not only from feeling, if it's bad enough, you have to get it from feeling superior to others, but just by success. I mean, most of us have self-worth when we succeed, and we don't have it when we fail, right? Yeah. And so, and that's exactly when we need our sense of self-worth is when we fall flat on our face. Mm-hmm. So during this, you've alluded to your research on the subject of self-compassion. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, what are those kind of key research findings that indicate why self-compassion is important for people? Uh, well, at this point, there's a huge literature. I, I can't even keep up with it. If you look on Google Scholar, I think there's almost 2,000 entries, dissertations, and published articles. I know it's crazy. I used to be so on top of my game and knew what the research was. And I kind of know now, but it's, it's a lot bigger than me at this point. So, you know, the basic research findings are that self-compassion is really strongly linked to mental health. So it's linked Mm. to, you know, reductions in the negative states like anxiety, depression, stress, perfectionism, eating disorders, and really any sort of psychopathology, self-compassion appears to be, you know, a protection against that. On the other hand, it's also linked to positive states, things like happiness or optimism, um, even physical health. And I I really do think there's something special about self-compassion. I mean, obviously I do because I've devoted my life to it. The thing that's a little unique about self-compassion compared to maybe some other things like, I don't know, savoring or gratitude or all these other wonderful states, what's unique about self-compassion is that it's aimed at suffering, right? Specifically aimed at suffering. It's a way for us to cope with suffering. It allows us to support ourselves, be kind to ourselves, to kind of hold our pain with love, you might say. Mm -hmm. But the love that holds the pain is actually a positive emotion. So you're almost taking the positive emotion of compassion, of love, of connectedness, of kindness, of mindfulness, and you're using that and applying it directly to a negative emotion. So it kind of reduces the negative at the same time that it generates the positive. I think there is something special about 
aiming this positive emotion of love at pain. You know, it helps us cope with the pain, it helps us get through it, it provides grit. And yet the love itself is its own motivator, it's its own source of reward, it's its own source of fulfillment. That's great. So how can people grow it? For example, I know that you and Chris Germer have created this truly excellent program called Mindful Self-Compassion. Yes. And I encourage people to do it. And sometimes they can find briefer workshops or, yeah. or classes in different settings. That's all great. Mm-hmm. On their own, sort of a DIY self-compassion, do-it-yourself self-compassion. What uh-huh. can people do? What are maybe two or three key practices you would encourage people to engage in everyday life? to build up the inner strength of trait self-compassion. Yeah, I mean, so the thing that I think really surprised me about the self-compassion work, it's been much easier to teach it to people than I thought it would be. I kind of thought that, you know, some people had it, some people didn't, and it'd be really hard to develop it. But the reason it's actually not as hard as I think I thought it would be is because most of us, not everyone, but most of us have actually already developed the skill of compassion and being a good friend. Most of us have some relationship, a good friendship, or maybe a relative that we care for, and that we know how to support someone, we know what words to say, we know how to be kind, we know how to be warm, we know how to use like physical touch, tone of voice to convey that we care. And so because we already have that skill in place, all we really need to do with ourselves is turn that skill inward, right? So for instance, a very easy way to give yourself compassion is just to say, you know, well, let's say I had a really good friend I cared about who was experiencing the exact same situation I am, you know, whether it's a relationship issue or failure or some other stressor, what would I say to a friend I cared about? How, and also, how would I say it, right? Would I say it like robotically? Or I say it with meaning and warmth and like kind of the tone of voice. And if you turn that inward and you say to yourself the same thing, especially with the same warm tone of voice, we can really accept it. It's funny, but it's like the brain doesn't seem to be that good at differentiating. Or maybe it's not that it's not good, maybe it doesn't care. The brain still responds to those words of kindness, the tone of voice, and especially touch right? I mean, think about it. When babies come out of the womb, they don't have language yet. They can't have a conversation with their parents. How do they know they're loved and cared for? Well, it's conveyed through touch, through holding, and also tone of voice, you know, those sounds that parents make. And that's why if we remember things like touch, giving ourselves some supportive, you know, gesture that cradling your face, holding your hand, putting your hands on your heart, whatever feels good. People are different in terms of what feels good. But if you use touch, it helps calm down the sympathetic nervous system, makes us feel safe and cared for, just like we did when we were babies. If we use a warm tone of voice, and if we say kind, encouraging things, you know, again, none of these are rocket science, and yet they can be incredibly powerful for helping us cope with difficulty. Do you give yourself self-compassion on the fly in these kind of ways over the course of a typical day? Totally. Yeah. I mean, so I don't, at this point, I don't really like have to do formal self-compassion practice. A lot of people do. If if your habit is self-criticism, you know, you might want to take some time out and do some sort of meditation or, or do more, you know, kind of a formal practice. We've developed a lot of them, but I've pretty much broken the habit of self-criticism at this point. So that doesn't come up very much for me, but sometimes I get into problem solving mode. 
something happens. Okay, how am I going to problem? How what am I going to do? You know, and you kind of your brain gets completely engaged in problem solving. But if I just pause and remember, hey, Kristen, this is kind of hard. Then as soon as I do that, then immediately I can pause and just kind of acknowledge the pain, which is the mindfulness and. You know, I, I give myself soothing touch all the time. I don't do it in public because it looks funny. <laughs> but, you know, I'll put my hands on my heart or, you know, it, it's funny. It really does help. It's not like you get inured to it. You know, yeah. as human beings, we are born value touch. It's kind of just built into our physiology. So I do touch and, you know, try to give myself support. And so at this point, it is pretty, I wouldn't say it's totally automatic. Because actually, you know, you know, I don't need to tell Dr. Hanson this about the default mode network. The brain's default mode is to go into problem solving, right? And so I don't know if it can ever be more automatic than problem solving or negativity, which mm. seems to be the brain's truest default mode. But you can, because of neuroplasticity, you can build it up so it comes in pretty quickly thereafter, you know. Kristen, could you briefly summarize how a person could do a formal practice of self-compassion at home, maybe to build up the habit of self-compassion over time? Yeah, yeah. So one of my favorite practices that kind of translates more easily into daily life is a practice we have called working with difficult emotions, Mm -hmm. which is where you start out when you're having some difficult emotion, you start out with some mindfulness practices like labeling, well, what is this emotion I'm feeling? finding it in your body, you know, which is a mindfulness practice. Where do I actually feel the anger or the sadness or the fear? And then you do a practice we call a soften, soothe, allow, where you kind of practice softening your body around the difficult emotion, kind of holding it more tenderly with that, again, that softness, that tenderness. And then you soothe yourself. You put a hand on where you're feeling it and you say these kind words. And then you go back to the kind of the mindfulness of just allowing it to be there. And you go through these you know, cycles of soften, soothe, allow, soften, soothe, allow. And it's like you stick on the track of the painful emotion. You're with it as it does its little dance. And typically when we aren't resisting a painful emotion, it often, you know, sometimes it'll morph into another emotion, you know, underneath that anger was sadness, underneath that sadness was fear, or it moves in the body. And I, it sounds kind of weird, but sometimes I've had these difficult emotions just like shoot outside the top of my head. I don't know what's happening, but it feels like they just go up my spine and shoot out the top of my head. And then I feel really <laughs> clear afterwards. You never, you can't predict what's going to happen. The thing is emotions, we are in control of our emotions, right? They just, they just do whatever they do. And so if we can accompany the emotions in this compassionate way, with my, you need mindfulness as well. Mindfulness is, you can't have compassion without mindfulness. Mm. So with mindfulness and the warmth and that feeling of connectedness, it's not just me. You can actually practice accompanying a difficult emotion in kind of a more formal way, but then it starts to becoming more habitual in your daily life. Wow. Yeah. I think that's an excellent practice. And it also feels like a great note to close this part of our conversation on. So to offer a quick recap, today we spoke with Dr. Kristen Neff about self-compassion. This episode really focused more on the fundamentals of self-compassion, the characteristics that define it, and the reasons that it's valuable to us in day-to-day life. Dr. Neff also added at the end there a nice little practice that allows you to rest yourself in the feeling of self-compassion just in the course of everyday life. We'll be returning in a couple of days with part two of our conversation with Dr. Kristen Neff. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a comment and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out, and we very much appreciate it. 
So until next time, thanks for listening. 